0: aerospace unplugged hello and welcome back to aerospace unplugged this is the podcast where we give our listeners a behind-the-scenes look into all things aerospace today we're going to do something a little bit different and we have a special guest host with us in the studio Welcome to Chris Holly. He's one of our marketing directors here at Honeywell Aerospace, and he's going to deep dive with our guest, Michael Young, into directed energy weapons. Thank you, Carrie. Hey, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, directed energy with uh, Mike Young. Uh,
1: Mike, what is your title? It's a directed energy program director. So I'm responsible for the product portfolio, uh, engineering, modeling, and sim, working with OEM customers on their directed energy uh, problem statements. Well, thanks for joining us today. Can you
0: uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Honeywell?
1: Uh, Yes. I originally, uh, my first part of my career was in the military, in the U.S. Air Force. I spent 20 years in the Air Force. Uh, Vast majority of that was doing experimental flight tests. I'm a flight test engineer, Um, went through the test pilot school, uh, got to fly several different uh, aircraft. I was very fortunate in in that respect. I was an instructor there for a little while. Uh, and I met a Honeywell employee while I was an instructor at Test Pilot School, who eventually came to Honeywell, and he encouraged me to apply when I uh, retired from the military in 2014. So, uh, so then I applied for a position there and was picked up as a program manager, and that's how I got started. You uh, did you work out at Edwards in the in the desert? Yeah, I spent most of my career at Edwards. Uh, probably, I guess, eight to nine years of that. Um, Mostly testing F16s. I was the director of test ops on the f35 C17s, uh, and then I was an instructor at the schoolhouse for for eight, three years. The
0: pretty small community, the uh, test pilot it is it is
1: a pretty tight-knit community. that's for sure. Um, everybody knows each other. Um, so yeah, and that everybody everybody works together. it's it's a it's a close community cuts across different services in different companies. okay. And uh, you flew in the U-2, I understand. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, I, that's probably my most memorable flight in the military. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a flight test engineer, to get to, to put on the spacesuit and go through the training and for a week and get to do a high flight at the U-2 above 70,000 feet was an incredible experience, yeah. Wow. Uh, so tell
0: us about directed energy weapons. What are they?
1: Um, so directed energy weapons are uh, systems like lasers, high-energy lasers, high-power microwave, and non-lethal uh, um, action at a distance, you could say, to, uh, to, to realize an effect on your adversary. Um, so things like defeating a counter-UAS or a, a UAS system like a UAV uh, or an, protecting an unmanned. Unmanned aerial, aerial, aerial vehicle. vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yep, thank you. Um and protecting against counter or, or rockets, artillery, and munitions, for instance, are various applications of of directed energy.
0: What's the advantage over the more traditional
1: type yeah, of weapon? That's a good question. So the primary reason why directed energy weapons are so effective is because they operate at the speed of light and the the low cost per shot uh is 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 a big advantage of directed energy. There are some disadvantages as well. So you have things like uh, target obscuration, um, uh, atmospheric effects that you have to deal with. But um, there are there are definitely some advantages in certain um, mission areas.
0: So when you say uh, obscuration, you mean you, you can't shoot through rain?
1: Uh, right. Uh, you, there's it's going to affect the performance of the laser, for instance. If you're if you're shooting through rain, um, that would that would definitely have a, dust a distortion. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly.
0: So I imagine a uh, very, very uh, uh, effective type of technology, but also vulnerable to the atmosphere, vulnerable
1: to vibration. Right. So that's part of the pl- uh, the the plan for the that the DoD is exercising right now is to de-risk all of those programs, uh, all of those um, engineering challenges, so that the systems can be operationalized. That's a big emphasis of the Department of Defense and our um, and our international partners as well. So you mentioned vibration, that's definitely an area of emphasis because as you, can, as you can imagine, putting a spot on a target at a distance, if you're operating on an airborne platform, for instance, there's gonna be a lot of atmospheric turbulence, there's gonna be jitter of the system, so you've gotta counteract that uh, through the use of, of stabilization systems, for instance, and that's one area where Honeywell participates, just as an example. And you kind of have to keep it on the target, right? Uh, it, right, it takes it's a, a little while to uh, mm-hmm. to, to burn through. Yeah, anything? in the instance of lasers, so the the idea is to if you it depends on the defeat mechanism, but if you're trying to say uh, target the wing of a of a UAS system of an unmanned aerial system. And you want to defeat that aircraft that way, then you would target the seam of the wing. So obviously, the, the precision that you use to defeat the target is going to be paramount. We call it power in the bucket. That's the metric that's used. It's the amount of energy from the system projected on a, on a given point on the target. And uh, that ha- you know, there's a dwell time that you need to worry about. There's the peak energy you need to worry about. But it's all about the amount of joules of energy getting on that particular target that that exercises the defeat mechanism of the of the target.
0: So, you know, when you think about lasers uh, and masers, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, you think about the the actual beam. Um, and I know there's been a lot of research uh, over the years into how to create a, a more powerful beam. The parts you don't think about are how are you going to cool this thing? How are you going to power this thing? Um, and then, of course, the stabilization issue. Because mm-hmm. like you said... Uh, it's got to be stable because you need a little bit of time for it to do its work.
1: Right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where Honeywell, that's where our participation comes in. So you've touched on that. So, um, Honeywell, uh, has a long history of developing power and cooling systems for, for aircraft, especially, but not exclusively. So the F 35, for instance, we have the power and thermal management system on the F 35. We have the uh, vapor cycle system on the F 22, Uh, We have a long legacy of providing air cycle machines for commercial aircraft, for instance. Um, We've developed high-power generators. A lot of people don't know that we make more engines than any other company out there, uh, you know, turbine engines, and that's because we have a a lot of the helicopter market, the business jet market. So we have a lot of experience in turbo generation, for instance. So all of those different systems are enabling. Uh, There's been a great deal of emphasis in the in, in our OEMs and with the DoD, the, the the original equipment manufacturers like you know Boeing, Lockheed, uh, Northrop, etc., there's been a lot of focus on developing the laser systems themselves, and that's that's valid because we needed to reach an energy that was operationally useful. But to uh, to generate the amount of uh, electrical energy to power those lasers is a real challenge, and to put it in a size, weight, and power package that's small enough to be put on a military platform. So that's where Honeywell shines. We've got that expertise in building small, very powerful power and cooling systems. So about a year ago, we uh, we unveiled a, a turbo generator. Uh,
0: it was a flight-proven helicopter engine that's been connected to two 200 uh, kilowatt generators. Created a lot of excitement, I think, within the industry. Uh, I know there's also a one-megawatt uh, generator out there. Can you give us a little Kind of an update on on how those would be applied and and what the status is with those.
1: Sure. So um, as we mentioned, uh, as we were talking about before, uh, you need to generate electrical power to power up these the high power microwave or the high energy laser systems. As right now, state of the art is starting to push into forty percent efficiency or so. Um, electrical to opt- optical efficiency. So by those numbers, if you wanted to generate—boy, I got to do some quick math—but if you had—if you wanted to generate um, 100 kilowatts worth of optical power from the laser, you would have to generate something like—you know—what is it? 160 uh, or 200 kilowatts worth? Or a little bit more than that. Sorry, 250. 250 kilowatts of electrical energy to do that. So as the DoD. Ramps up their requirements in terms of the need for a powerful laser. You need a powerful electrical uh, system that could be batteries, that could, combination of batteries and generators, etc. So um, Honeywell, because of the past experience that I, you know, was de- was describing. Um, We've built a turbo generator that is powered by a small turbine engine, uh, HTS-900, as you mentioned, powering two 200-kilowatt generators through a gearbox, and there's programs out there to increase that power level to 250 kilowatts each generator. And potentially even up to 750 with a third, uh, with a special gearbox that we're that we're developing. So this is all done uh, at a pretty fuel efficient uh, capability of the of the engine itself. That program has kicked off this year, and uh, we're going to be demonstrating that capability uh, later on this year in December. Um, and then the megawatt generator you mentioned, that program is a parallel effort. Honeywell's invested quite a bit of money, and the objective is to get to what we call technical, ready, or, uh, yeah, technical readiness level 6, which means you've actually demonstrated it um, by uh, this year. And that will prove that Honeywell can develop a one-megawatt ca- uh, power of continuous energy, and then that would be mated to another turbine of some kind, and we're considering various Honeywell options for that.
0: Now, I know in the past uh, there's there have been efforts to put uh, – lasers and and, and masers on ships and of course on a ship you don't have the sort of weight and size limitations you could in fact I've seen some sort of power storage systems that uh, are basically gigantic capacitors and and, uh, they're full of liquid or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they um, uh, they're heavy they're big they take up a whole storage container you know in some cases. Uh, you can't do that on aircraft, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, you, you don't have the same size, weight, capacity on an aircraft that you do on a ship. A ship does have some advantages. And just to touch on that for a little bit, the DOD is trying to decide whether they want centralized power and distribute it for the electric weapons like lasers or if they want federated systems like power systems that are uh, you know, closer to the actual laser itself. So they're still contemplating that. Uh, obviously, we would have more of a place in a federated uh, architecture versus a centralized one. Um, so, so we're waiting to see what the Navy does. But on the, on the Air Force side, on the, on the airborne side, I should say, um, yes, you need to have systems that are lighter weight, um, smaller, uh, and have a lot of uh, thermal and power capacity. And so Honeywell's developed various vapor cycle systems for the cooling We already have state-of-the-art on the F-22. It's a 52-kilowatt vapor cycle system. What that means is it can continuously cool 52 kilowatts worth of of heat um, by using this small uh, compressor and controller. Uh, We have programs in place to develop that further, up to 75, even 300 kilowatts. Um, And then on the power side, we've already talked about the wound field machines, the wound field generators. So that combination of putting a small generator with a small thermal management system is very, very powerful for av- airborne applications. Well, let's talk a little more about the, the cooling system then. So what parts are you actually cooling? Is it the the laser producing rod or... or uh... Right. So there's different there's different approaches to this. Um, you know, you've got to cool both the laser itself, the, that is the in the case of solid-state uh, diodes, for mm-hmm. instance, you've got to cool the diodes. There's different mechanisms to do that. You can do that through a liquid cooling loop across the diodes you could do that through a cold plate that's applied directly to the diodes and then your job is just to cool the cold plate to the controlling temperature so it depends on the the various schemes that you use Honeywell has experience with all of those different kinds of schemes um, so the vapor cycle system is is just one of the of the types of products that we can employ to do that there's more simple designs things like like you mentioned like a big tank of uh, EGW, essentially water, ethylene glycol water, um, you know, similar to what you have in your car radiator, using something like that and just using that to cool a loop as well. So it really just comes down to the application. Is it a ground-based system? Is it an air- air-based system? How much room do you have to work with, et cetera? What about the batteries? Do they have to be cooled as well? Yep, the batteries would have to be cooled as well. Um, so yeah, you have to consider all that when you're designing a cooling architecture.
0: And I understand we have a new cooling technology that we're using in the vapor cycle, the micro vapor cycle system. Let's yep, talk true.
1: about that. Um, so that's another parallel development effort that's ongoing right now. The idea is to develop a small, a very small, uh, vapor cycle system that can cool in the 15 to 20 kilowatt range. That's inexpensive, uh, lightweight. That could be used on ground vehicles. So there's a whole, there's a lot of applications for that. Directed Energy is just one of those. But what's really interesting is now you can, if you have this small cooling system plus a small power system, which we might get to our micro power unit, if you have those two systems and you put them together and you put them on a small ground vehicle, now you can increase the duty cycle of the laser system. So that's very important operationally, right? So you've taken this system that probably has a battery on board, and you've only got so much of a charge on that battery. You can only employ the laser for so long. But if you put these systems together, now all of a sudden you've increased your duty cycle two, three, four times, and you can can really uh, provide a very powerful operational capability to the warfighter. So we're not just
0: talking aircraft. We're talking this could go on a… Uh, a small boat. It could go on uh, an armored vehicle. Right. And it's an unlimited magazine.
1: You never, it depends. You have, there's a trade-off in duty cycle between the power output of the laser itself, the duty cycle, et cetera. But in principle, what this means is you can, you can cool the system longer. Um, So yes, you'd be able to do any number of things. You can increase the peak power or you could increase the duty cycle, or you could, you know, reduce the recharge time of the battery or reduce the, the cooling time of the, of the overall system.
0: Okay. Let's talk about the stabilization stuff, which I, I find fascinating because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if, if you have a laser <clears throat> pointed at something and it moves a millimeter, I imagine 10 miles away, that's, that's a huge, exactly. huge difference, right?
1: Right, right. So if you're trying to defeat a target at a distance, and I mentioned there's lots of research going into figuring out the defeat mechanisms of various targets. Um, so the The more accurate you can be with your spot, uh, the more power in the bucket, as we talked about before, on that spot. So where Honeywell comes in is we've been doing stabilization products. An example is our D-strut. Uh, we've been doing this for years. For instance, we do the stabilization on the Hubble Space Telescope. So that level of accuracy can be applied towards, uh, you know, if it can be applied to our teles- telescope in space to look at stars light years away, we can use that same technology to point the systems for ground-based systems, airborne, et cetera.
0: So wait a minute. We we did the stabilization system for the Hubble? Part of it, yes. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's something you really need to keep on target, right? <laughs> I would think so. Wow. Um, so can you give me an, a real world example? Like if you, uh, if you put one of our, uh, you know, this paint mixers at, uh, at the, the hardware store, if you put one of our stabilization systems on it and you
1: put a little laser pointer on it, would it, would it just stay rock steady? Uh, that's a very good question. So, um, Yes, there's a, a large what they, the, basically the frequency spectrum that you can dampen out uh, is quite wide for the D strut, for instance. Um, so we've done various tests where we've taken a a a a, a load and we've put these D struts around it and we've exercised it through the frequency spectrum. Um, so, so yes, that would be the idea is that it, like a paint mixer or a shaker like that, that might be too much. I'm not exactly sure. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's the idea is that you could have a system that's shaking like that, vibrating like that, either, uh, you know, coherent, you know, coherently, or, or you've got a wide, you know, all kinds of different cross currents going in there that the system would actively be and, and passively be able to dampen all that out. Yep. You've picked up on it. Wow.
0: So, uh, when you say you activate it uh, by
1: frequency you mean you shake it right shake it yeah sorry <laughs> I'm getting to engineering speak there exactly you shake it you you twist it etc and you still want to be able to maintain uh, you know the, the point on the on the target and as you can appreciate it uh, the the enemy's not gonna wait for you to get nice and stable to shoot at them right you're gonna you're gonna be turning and burning if you're in a fighter for instance so you need a system that can very very quickly uh, acquire and track that target through whatever maneuvers you're executing. And if you're on the ground and, and you're being attacked with
0: artillery or something, uh, not only are you trying to track a very fast-moving target,
1: you've also, you know, you've got vibration on the ground. Mm-hmm. You've got the engine on the platform, for instance, that's uh, that's turning. So you've got to be able to dampen that out. Um, there's also a desire for the Army to have a shoot-on-the-move capability. You know, wouldn't that be great if you don't have to sit around and wait for that rocket to hit you? You'd like to get it out of the way. So you know, driving and also being able to point and shoot is a critical capability for the Army. And you know, these systems, you know, we think we haven't built one yet uh, for that specific application, but um, you know, analysis shows that our systems would be very useful for that. That's great.
0: Now, uh, Talon,
1: I, I know that's an application as well. Can you explain what, I, what that is? Uh, so not my, not my deep field of expertise, but an, it's an EGGI, uh, an embedded GPS INS system, or just a, an IMU, an inertial measurement unit, depending on how you want to put the systems together. But um, the idea is that it's a gyroscope, and it will be able to detect movement, or it doesn't detect movement, really. It just stabilizes in the presence of movement to give you your pointing angles. Um, that can be useful for navigation, but for directed energy applications, it's useful for you know pointing a, a laser, for instance, or a high-power microwave on a target. So one technology is stabilizing it, keeping it rock mm-hmm. steady. Mm-hmm. The other
0: technology is pointing it.
1: Correct. Yep, you got it. And we make both of those. We do. And we've got lots of, lots of experience. Our Talon line, for instance, that you pointed out, the Talons, our EGIs and our IMUs are on something like 90% of all military platforms in the DoD. So, And, and we do everything from developing IMUs for munitions, small munitions, all the way up to large aircraft. So, you know, uh, different levels of um, drift rates. Drift rates are important for IMUs. You got to be able to update it in some way. Um, We develop systems that are, um, can operate in the presence of a GPS denied environment, which you can, as you can appreciate, is quite militarily important. Uh, We can't expect that GPS is going to be available all the time. And, um, and you need to know where you are at, at any time, whether you're in the presence of jamming or if the GPS constellation has su- uh, suffered a defeat in some way,
0: so these are super sensitive motion detectors, basically that can help you navigate right. without need for any signal, any radio. Uh, right, and, or uh, b-
1: but let me clarify because yes, they do have; they're very accurate, and they have variously different drift, various different drift rates depending on the, the product that we're talking about. But um, the other thing that's really important is that even in the presence of jamming, you can still get an update to your inertials and correct for your errors. So we have different schema um, that we can employ to update the navigational position uh, in the presence of jamming uh, and, and other uh, operational considerations, other operational threats. So how do you, how do you model and, and simulate
0: uh, this kind of work. I mean, I imagine that's a big part of it.
1: It is, and I'll try not to get too technical here, because for the for the interest of our listeners. But um, so Honeywell, as I mentioned, we've got decades of experience developing these cooling systems and power systems for commercial and military platforms. So um, we have developed a proprietary tool for modeling. It's called Nexus. Don't ask me what it stands for, because I forget. But it was developed by the engineers in Torrance, and that system is really, really good for very, very highly uh, complex and accurate dynamic and transient responses for thermal management systems. So basically what you can do is you can take components, you put them together, you model them in a MATLAB-like environment, and then you can say what that system is going to do for various design conditions, different you know environmental heats, different duty cycles, etc., in the case of directed energy weapons. Um, so we have that system. But what we were finding was that system is great for design, but customers want you to help them develop their requirements quickly they want to be able to sit down with you and say how is this possible is this system is are these requirements can we work with that what would a thermal and power system look like for that we have taken the some aspects of nexus and then developed our own cap- some other unique dw capabilities and developed a system that can rapidly prototype that so we can sit down with a customer in, you know, minutes and hours versus weeks with the Nexus. In a matter of hours, we can come back and give them an answer as to whether something's in the, the realm of the possible. And this is really good for them. It's good for us. We take on that modeling work for them. They can then iterate with their customer. Say the Army, is, for example, if they have a requirement, our OEM, our OEM customers can then work with them and say, well, we've modeled this. If you make this small change, you can save yourself 50% of your budget. And still meet those requirements, or you know, if you if you can give a little compromise here, we can give you a lot of bang for your buck. Those kinds of things, or we might be able to say, hey, you've underestimated what you can do uh, with this with various uh, with this uh, cooling technique that we think that we can employ. We can double your output power, or we can double your duty cycle. It's a very very powerful tool.
0: So you could have a uh, an armored vehicle, and you could simulate. Okay, I'm going to put a laser on top of this thing. What parts of the vehicle are going to get hot? Or where the stress is going to be—that sort of thing could be modeled ahead of time. It,
1: it could be. Our focus is more on the the architecture that we're in control of. That is the power and thermal system. But yes, of course, uh, those things could could be applied to the vehicle itself. If we could we could input parts of the uh, of the architecture to simulate the vehicle itself is something you would need to, con- to cool as well. But the focus is on the the specific equipment that we're trying to cool and the and what we call the hotel loads. So the hotel loads are things like the um, the engine of the vehicle, the uh, other electronics that we're trying to cool in the vehicle as well. Yep. I think when people
0: think of directed energy, if they if they do, <laughs> it's uh, it's about they think about
1: lasers, mm-hmm. but there are also microwave technologies. Right. They're dazzlers. Right. Exactly. Um, so th- there's everything from like and you just picked up on it being able to defeat a seeker head, for instance, an, an infrared seeker head, uh, to uh, dazzling somebody's. Uh, spy satellite, uh, or you can go all the way up to actually a hard kill, you know, what we call a hard kill, so defeating a, a cruise missile, say, or a ballistic missile, even, uh, you know, there's been attempts to do that. So, um, so yeah, it's the full spectrum. And high-power microwave, as, as you mentioned, that's another technology. So you can imagine you have this UAV, and it's got control systems. Somebody's controlling it from the ground, or it's getting its commands from somewhere. You can use an RF signal uh, using high-power microwave, radio frequency signal using high-power microwave to defeat that signal to jam it, or you could actually cause a failure mode by putting so much energy into the electronics that they're actually defeated in another way. So that's the idea of the high-power microwave. There are also some non-lethal applications. So for instance, you know, being able to scare somebody away, uh, projecting a voice at a distance. This is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the wow. uh, the, uh, the non-lethal program office at Navy Dahlgren, um, has developed a technology that's like that, where they can project a voice in space. So imagine you're, a, you're the bad guy, you're a couple miles away, and all of a sudden you're hearing basically the voice of God telling you you're in the wrong place and you need to move, right? So that's, that's also considered a, a non-lethal application of directed energy. Wow, really, ex- really some exciting technologies out there. And our, our equipment could be could be applied to that, to right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you can get you know further range. You still need to cool it. All the same, all the same problem statement that you would have with a laser, you have with high power microwave. It's the uh, ventriloquism. Yeah, yeah, it is.
0: That's that's a good word for it. Um, c- can you give me give me a scenario? Like, tell me about ba- a story about what a battle would look like
1: uh, in the future with these types of uh, systems. I'll do my best. I'm not a, I didn't, I wasn't an air defense officer or anything like that, but um, I would just say it's probably going to happen pretty quick and I'll focus on my background, which is aerospace, you know, airborne and like the air force. So um, these lasers are probably going to be used to protect an aircraft as a first mission role. So you're in, you're flying around in your, Fourth generation fighter, for instance, or fifth generation fighter, and you've got a volley of surface-to-air missiles that you have to defeat. These one of the one of the first uses you're going to see on the battlefield is going to be to protect the aircraft itself. Um, it's going to be much more uh, you know capable than like a Laircum which is a an infrared countermeasure system. If you can actually know that you defeated the seeker head, you're going to have a, you have the capability of doing that. You know that you're. Probability of getting shot down is going to be much much less. So that's definitely going to be one of the first uses on the battlefield uh, from an airborne perspective. And then there's going to be um, uh, special operations. That's also going to be another one. If you have a, a system on like a C-130 um, and you've got your special operators going out on day one to defeat a, com- a, a command and control system, um, being able to silently persecute that is a really really powerful thing. So right now AC-130s have these big howitzer guns on board and if you miss there's collateral damage you're going to make a lot of noise they're going to know you're coming you can imagine if you're flying around at you know 15 20 000 feet and you got a laser if you can silently disable the systems that you're looking for you're going to realize a lot less collateral damage a lot less loss of life um and you're going to operate silently and you'll be able to you know do the mission still so that's, that's interesting very, very i i never thought of the fact that they're silent mm-hmm. yeah they're silent um there is, you know, obviously the target being prosecuted could be or might not be silent. It might be quite uh, explosive. But uh, but the idea is that you won't necessarily give away your position. Now, you are shooting a laser, so somebody could, you know, if they're looking at a – if they have an optical detector in that beam, they would be able to see it. But at least you wouldn't have the, the noise from the cannon being fired, the the, the muzzle flash, etc. So, yeah, that's uh, – that's definitely going to be one of the first areas that's going to be used in the battlefield. And then as we, as, as I, we talked about it, as you ramp up that energy level, you're going to be able to do a lot more. you're going to be able to defeat cruise missiles, et cetera. So let's talk about a Navy situation where you've got several different ships out there and you've got a large armada of uavs coming at you how are you going to defeat that if you have can kin- if you have to defeat it kinetically it's going to be very very hard you need to be able to prosecute many many targets very very quickly so I, you can envision a scenario where these ships are all working together and talking to each other over a network and figuring out the right engagement distances based upon the atmospherics of that day and being able to defeat the 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 um a large number of UAVs very quickly. That's definitely a scenario that could happen in the future. Those are just a few examples. I mean, there's just so many to go over, but those just are a couple of the more uh, ones that come to mind, of top of mind ones.
0: Yeah, it seems like we're getting into an era where, uh, like drone technology or, uh, you know, even unmanned boat technology is getting so cheap that if you don't come up with something that has an unlimited magazine, um, you could you could get overwhelmed right quickly by a swarming attack we've seen that we just
1: saw that in syria and in yemen and, and those those sorts of those sorts of attacks are becoming much more prevalent the math just doesn't work out to shoot a patriot missile at a class one or two uav which is you know something that's happening every once in a while it's going to be much more effective to use you know a dollar per shot laser on a system like that does that mean that we're going to get rid of kinetic weapons like that altogether no there's always going to be a place for that but uh, these systems augmenting those kinetic capabilities are going to be a very uh, a very potent uh, defense capability for for our military and for our uh, allies. Yeah. So uh, you were a pilot. Um, uh, were you ever in combat? No. Uh, I spent all my days uh, doing science and technology as a, as a flight test engineer, really. There's a difference between a test pilot and a flight test engineer. So I did get all my ratings civilian-wise, but but uh, I was mostly a backseater, mm-hmm. as a as a way to put it. But no, I never had to, to fight in combat.
0: Did Did you ever uh, were you ever in a, a war game where you were, uh, you know, being shot at virtually or? Uh, oh yeah,
1: we had lots of those. Sure, yeah, and that was used to test the systems themselves. So yeah, all kinds of virtual and real type of combat to to operationally and developmentally prove technology. Mm-hmm. I imagine, even though it's it's not real, it's it's still. Uh,
0: Pretty pretty alarming when you hear an alarm going off. You're being you can make it surprisingly realistic. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you feel more? I, you know, I imagine you. You, it's almost like being there in some cases, right? Almost like being shot at.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, you you always have in the back of your mind that you're in a scenario, but your your adrenaline is up, and you wanna and you wanna win, um, even if it's in the in operationally testing something for the first time. You still want to do the best you can, so you're still you know, you're still trying to get peak performance out of the pilot and yourself, yeah. Do you ever talk to uh, – have you ever talked to pilots that have been in combat and been – All the time. Shot at? Or oh, yeah, or all the time. Fired upon? There were – there. Were, we were closely – we worked with them in the military. You know, that was uh, – you know, almost every pilot that became a test pilot had some operational experience like that, yeah.
0: Have you ever talked to anybody who's come up to you and said, you know – this system could save my buddy someday, or, or,
1: Oh yeah, that was one of the most rewarding things of having that career, is we would we would be testing a system, and in some cases that would be fielded, and you would be watching it on CNN, and you'd be like, wow, okay, I had something to do with that. I'm really protecting American lives. This is really exciting, and that's what and that goes back to why I work in in the field that I do. I, um, having been, you know, working with operators, been and worn the uniform, it's very exciting to develop something that. Is a is a is a force multiplier like directed energy, and uh, and that's that's really why I do it. and And the fact that it can be used to minimize collateral damage, it can be done to save taxpayer money, it can be used to defeat systems without, um, you know, without killing folks if you don't have to. Those kinds of things are very appealing, and still being able to protect the country. So, Mike, this is great. Uh,
0: really fascinating technology. Thanks for coming in talking you to you for us about it uh, today. Uh One question we always ask the guests on our show is, "How do you unplug at the end of
1: the day?" uh okay, so spending all the time that we do in laboratories and behind closed doors and in offices, it's important to get outside so uh, my way of unplugging is surfing is a big is a big thing that I do, and then flying uh I have a light twin airplane that I fly. And my fiance and I do something called acro yoga. If you, you got to look into this, it's pretty interesting. It's basically like yoga, except you're doing all kinds of crazy poses where I'm holding her with one arm, or putting over my head, or she stands on one foot, and all those kinds of things. It's it's kind of a, a relaxing and exciting thing to do as a couple. So those are the things that that we like to do together, and that and that relaxes me and gets me ready to go and think about directed energy the next day. So that's how test pilots unwind. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if all of them do, but this one does. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: This episode was produced by Katie Carney and edited by Chloe Dake.